Well, good evening, everyone. And it is a great privilege to be here, uh, at least uh, remotely, uh, through the wonders of technology. It's good to see technology being used for a good purpose, uh, for the uh, spreading of the good news and for the upbuilding of the saints. And it's a joy to be with my brother, Steve, and uh, I've enjoyed his ministry. It's been very encouraging. And uh, I trust, again, the Lord will bless our time together this evening. I'd like you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Galatians, and uh, both our readings are going to come from Galatians this evening. Galatians chapter 3 is where I'd like to read from. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then, of course, we'll turn to the theme verse for the messages that I've been giving from Galatians 6 and verse 14. So first of all, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you, received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And then please our theme verse, and we'll go back to Galatians 3 after reading this verse, Galatians 6, 14. It says, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And again, God will bless that reading of his word to us this evening. I guess this message is kind of the application message. It's when, uh, in a sense, the things that we've considered up to now get driven home, I hope, by the Spirit of God. Uh, we've thought a lot about the glory of the cross. We've thought about it being the expected cross and how, as we consider the Word of God, we see in the Old Testament that there was the promise and there was prophecy concerning the cross, and there was lots of beautiful pictures concerning the cross. And then, of course, we know that in space-time history, the Lord Jesus came and bore that cross at Calvary. We saw that it's the essential cross. We can't be saved without it. Uh, we can't fully understand God and all of his attributes without being at Calvary and seeing uh, this mixture of love and mercy and justice and wrath and, and holiness and all of these things brought together at the cross. It's essential for us to understand these things. We learned about the empty cross, that the work was finished that he's not still there, uh, he, every sin was paid for, that he's the empty cross, the empty tomb. And all oh, praise God for that, that the Lord Jesus finished the work that his father had given him to do. And then we thought about the eternal cross, that as we stretch back into the eons of time, and even before that, into eternity, that this was always in the mind of God, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And as we look into eternity future, uh, we will forever be gazing on the lamb as it had been slain. So Calvary will never be far away from our thoughts and our minds throughout all eternity. But now we want to think particularly about the expounded cross. And I want you to notice that uh, in chapter three of Galatians, he talks about these Galatians, and he, he said that they were, they were foolish. And they were foolish because somebody had put them under a spell, and they'd allowed themselves, as it were, to be put under this spell. You want to think about who this was, uh, just for a second, because it's kind of interesting uh, to trace this through. If you look at chapter 5, you'll notice 
it says in verse 7, you did run well. So for a time, the Galatians were really doing well. But it says, who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? And, and the picture is somebody who is running and somebody cuts in in front of them and they cause them to stumble and they break their stride and they're no longer running anymore because somebody cut in in front of them. I remember one time I was actually in India. I was rushing to catch a flight and I got this big bag with all my notes behind me. I was one of those that you drag around, you know, like an old dead carcass. And I'm, I'm walking as fast as I can. And somebody cut right in front of me with his equally big uh, carcass bag. And I went straight over it, landed on a concrete floor on my knees. Oh, it was an agony. And I wasn't rushing to the flight after that. I was hobbling to the flight. But I was running well, but somebody cut in and hindered me. And so he's asking, the, who did this? Who was it that did this? And then I want you to notice verse 10. It says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whoever he be. And so this false teaching that had taken their eyes away from Calvary and got them fixed on Sinai, it was an individual that brought this teaching in amongst the assemblies in Galatia. It was he that troubles you. And then tragically, verse 12, it never stays with just the he. Often it's just one person coming in with subversive doctrine, and then he finds some others, and soon it becomes they. And notice verse 12, I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. And so they've been put under a spell. Started with one individual that's now gathering pace. There's a few of them, and they've got the Galatians under a spell, uh, and uh, they've turned their eyes away from the truth that had been brought to them in such clarity. And what was that truth? Well, he says that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. It's very evident, and I just love that description, that when Paul went to Galatia and he preached the gospel message, he, he describes it this way, that Jesus Christ was set forth, evidently crucified among you. In other words, he preached the gospel with such clarity and, and with such power that it almost seemed that they were personally there at Calvary. That, that Christ was being crucified right in front of their eyes. And they had to make a decision because, be, be, uh, about that man on the center cross, uh, the one who was dying there as a substitute for sinners. And like the two thieves, they had a choice to make. What were they going to do? Were they going to mock? Were they going to ridicule? Or were they going to cry out for mercy uh, and say, Lord, remember me? And of course, there's a wonderful thing, isn't there, about gospel preaching. I don't know if you've ever been in gospel meetings where you've heard the gospel preached, and it almost seemed that you were right there at Calvary, that you were, you were looking and you were, you were taking in the scene, you were surveying the wondrous cross, and it was so real to your heart, and it, it captivated you, and you, you felt you had to respond. And of course, even after salvation, there's been times when I've heard gospel 
messages presented in such power that, as I said the other night, I felt like if I wasn't already saved, I'd get saved again because I just loved the message that was being presented. And it just caused my heart to burn within me as Christ was set forth crucified. And then he says, this only what I learn of you received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. And of course, uh, when somebody believes the gospel message, when they believe that Christ died for them on Calvary's cross, when they repent of their sins, they believe the gospel. One of the immediate things that happens is the spirit of God comes in and takes up permanent residence in that person's life. They, they receive the spirit, not by keeping the law, but, but, but by by faith, by hearing of faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And then it says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? And fleshly religious concepts had taken him away from the dynamic spirit-empowered message that they had once heard. And so we might ask ourselves the question, could it be said of our assemblies or foolish assembly Christians who has bewitched you that you've gotten away from the basic message of the cross and the preaching of the cross? It's interesting that in our day, there are many that don't want gospel preaching. They don't want it in our assemblies. I know that from personal experience. I remember, I'll never forget it, speaking at an assembly. won't say where it was. And uh, I was chatting with one of the elders before the meeting, and he asked me what, what I was going to preach on that morning. And I said, I have a real burden to preach the gospel. And his immediate response was, we don't want that here. Now, that might come as a shock to you, but that's exactly the words he said. We don't want that here. He said, we want ministry. He said, we're all Christians here, and we just want ministry. That was his response. And I was so convinced that morning that God wanted me to preach the gospel. I don't, I'm not usually this difficult or awkward, but I said to this brother, I said, well, you'll have to find another preacher because I know that the Spirit of God would have me give the gospel today. He said, well, you can preach it, but we're all Christians. But I said, okay. And so that morning, I preached the gospel. And before I'd even finished, a lady got up from a seat. She walked to the front in tears, and she received Christ as her personal savior. Interestingly enough, you know, she, she knew the hymns, and she knew the Bible. She could quote verse after verse after verse, but she didn't know the savior. She had a good dose of religion, but she didn't have any reality until that morning. And of course, afterwards, there was a lot of apologies, and there was, uh, we're all happy friends again now. But it tells me something, that, that there's a mindset and a mentality. And I mentioned it before about being at this Elders and Workers Conference, a guy pleading for gospel preaching. And, and so what are the arguments that people use that oppose gospel preaching, that are even antagonistic towards it? What, what is the logic behind that? Well, part of the logic goes something like this. We're to go out with the gospel and come in for edification. Oh, that all sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? And I, I won't deny for a second we're to go out with the gospel. I believe that. Where Scripture's clear. Uh, it tells us when persecution came in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, they went everywhere preaching the word. 
Uh, scripture says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And I'm all for, I started out as an open air preacher. Uh, I am committed to getting the gospel out by all means. So there's no question in my mind that there is, uh, that, that we're to go out with the gospel. But, but here's my issue and here's my difficulty. I think there are two fallacies connected with this argument. Firstly, fallacy number one is it's hard to go out with a message you hardly ever hear or rarely are confronted with. And you can be in assemblies Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and never, ever hear the gospel proclaimed. And so it's not at the forefront of your mind. It's just you're not thinking about it. In fact, a sister was talking to me recently, and she said she'd gone up to the preacher, and she'd invited a number of unsaved people to come to the meeting, and they had come. And she said, would you please bring in the gospel this morning? And the man said, no, I'm sorry. I have my message. I must deliver it. And so she was so utterly frustrated. She had brought with her. She was a bringer. She's like that woman of Samaria. Come and meet a man. Told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And she brought people to hear the word of God and to hear the gospel preached. And the man was so inflexible that he couldn't proclaim the gospel. And I want to suggest to you that we're so out of the way of gospel preaching that sometimes even if somebody comes in, I don't know that we're even capable of switching and bringing a gospel message. May God help us. I think we're, we're really uh, in a bad way in regarding that. So it, it's hard to go out with a message that you're really rarely ever confronted with. So there's a certain urgency, I think, and a necessity to bring back gospel preaching. Secondly, we're presuming that the preaching of the gospel is not edifying to the saints. You see, remember this argument, we want, we, we go out with the gospel and we come in to be edified, to be built up. Somebody I was interacting with recently, they said the gospel is not edifying. Well, obviously the apostle Paul didn't get that memo because the epistle to the Romans well, let's just look, turn there. Keep your finger in Galatians 3. Look at Romans chapter 1. We've, we read this recently uh, in one of the sessions, but I'm going to read it again. And I want you to think about what Paul is about to do. And he says in Romans 1.15, So as much as in me is, I am ready, he says, to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to the church at Rome, isn't he? He's writing to ch the church which is in Rome, and he's telling them, when I come to you, what is I'm going to do, he says, I'm going to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. In other words, he's going to preach the gospel to the Christians. And then he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then he spends the rest of his time in this letter giving the most wonderful unfolding of the gospel of grace you'll find anywhere in the entire word of God. And it's written to Christians. 
And so somehow he didn't get the memo that the gospel is not edifying, and he wrote to a church, and it's all gospel. And uh, and I'm I'm sorry, Paul, you missed it somehow. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. It's not edifying. Well, it is edifying. It's very edifying. Uh, there's nothing I think warms the heart of a child of God. Nothing strengthens him more than having the gospel, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified, set forth in a fresh way amongst them. And then Galatians, again, we're reading in there, it, it sets forth the gospel, defends the gospel, proclaims the gospel. First Corinthians, early part of First Corinthians, it's all gospel, gospel, gospel. And so Paul obviously was out of sync with modern thought. Modern thought doesn't want the gospel. The apostle Paul would be disgusted by modern thought that has no place for the gospel. Let's go to Ephesians for a moment in chapter four. And we're thinking of edification. And we notice in Ephesians four, and it's just interesting to look at this passage. It says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets. This is verse 11. Some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, notice that for the edifying of the body of Christ, and he gave some evangelists. Well, what do evangelists do? Well, they present the gospel. And yet it's for the edifying of the body of Christ. And, of course, they're also going to equip the saints. And I want to suggest to you that a good evangelist will proclaim the gospel and he'll proclaim it in such clarity and such power that it will equip you even when you're not even realizing it to go out and share the gospel to others. Because you'll hear arguments, you'll hear it presented in, in, in very winsome ways, and you will take that with you and you will go into the highways and byways and every opportunity you, you get, you will share that. Because, I, again, I think back to my early days as a Christian, uh, I heard lots of presentations of the gospel. And to this very day, to this very hour, when I get opportunities, I share the gospel and I still use some of those illustrations that I heard from a dynamic evangelist 40 years ago. And they're still affecting my ability to share Christ with others. And, and so can we faithfully, this is my question, preach the whole counsel of God like Paul did in Acts 20 in verse 17 or 27, Acts 20, verse 27. He says, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Do you suspect that as he presented the whole counsel of God, he might have skipped on the gospel? <laughs> I very much doubt it. I would think that it would be front and center in his presentation to those Ephesians when he was there in Ephesus, it would be front and center of the whole counsel of God. In fact, if I can summarize the Apostle Paul's ministry, I would say there are two things that this man was passionate about. Two things that were characteristic of Pauline ministry, and I believe should be characteristic of New Testament ministry today. One was the gospel of the grace of God. That was a characteristic of this man. He was passionate about the gospel, unfolding it, presenting it, uh, preaching it. Uh, this was the heart of Paul. And the other one was the mystery, the mystery of Jew and Gentile in one body, 
the church. And so if I could summarize Paul's ministry, it was gospel ministry and church truth. Those two things characterize the ministry of the Apostle Paul. I wonder what characterized our, our ministry today. What are we known for? Uh, are we like Paul? Are we, are we, he had a two-track mind, not a one-track mind, two-track mind, but really it was a one-track mind because nothing glorifies the Savior more than those two things, the truth concerning the church, which is his body, and the truth concerning the gospel of the grace of God. And so that was his passion. That's what he preached. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we, we, we characterize New Testament principles and we, we talk about the dynamics of New Testament Christianity. And this is how we describe it. We say, well, this is what a church looks like. It says uh, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, again, can I ask you, what do you think the apostles' doctrine is? Would you think it would have anything to do with the gospel? Like, what did the apostles teach? I mean, doctrine just simply means teaching. What did they teach? Well, listen to their sermons. What were their sermons about? Christ and him crucified and buried and risen again. Wasn't that their message? And so you can't give the apostles doctrine and miss the very heart of it, which is the gospel itself. And so we see that. This is a uh, really a fallacy, this argument, that it's not edifying. <laughs> it's not building up to the saints to present Christ and him crucified. The second major argument <clears throat> that is presented uh, by the naysayers who are opposed to gospel preaching is that it doesn't work, it's ineffective, and it's outdated. We're, we're told we're basing it on a Victorian model where, you know, we're still in the days of Spurgeon and Moody and, and all of this kind of thing. And we've not moved on, but the world has moved on. And so it's no longer relevant and you can't get people in and it doesn't work. And yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it. I've heard it. And yet here's the interesting thing. I have a friend. He's, uh, he's with the Lord now, but uh, only recently. And uh, he's from Northern Ireland, and uh, he's been part of an assembly there in a, a place called the Ards Peninsula in Northern Ireland. And he said their little assembly there for 10 years, uh, every Sunday night, they had a gospel service, and there was no blessing. And they went, it went on for 10 years, no blessing. Nobody's getting saved, no real movement. And so <clears throat> instead of quitting, they decided they got really burdened. And they did what Steve advised us from Psalm 107. Uh, yes, they cried out to the Lord. Uh, they, they really got burdened about, Lord, we're not seeing anybody saved. We're not seeing any movement in the preaching of the gospel. And they fell on their faces before God, and they began to really pray. They had a deep exercise, and people began to, uh, you know, rally around and invite people out. And people started coming, and they went on the 11th year, 10 years of no fruit in the gospel, year 11, every Sunday night for a whole year, a person, at least one person, was saved in that little gospel hall. Aren't you glad they didn't quit on year 10? <laughs> Wouldn't that have been a disaster? And you see, what we can say is, well, if it's not working, it's, it's not working because of a lack of power in the gospel. 
Could it be that we're not in a right spiritual condition to bless? Maybe we're not seeking God like we ought to, falling on our faces, crying out for him for blessing. Maybe we're not exercising, inviting people out. Maybe we're not even confident to invite people out because we're not sure they're going to hear a clear gospel message. And so, and by the way, let me tell you how bad it is. I was at a funeral not too long ago. Now, if ever there's a funeral, uh, ever, sorry, if ever there's an opportunity to present the gospel, it's at a funeral. Let's be honest. I mean, you've got an object lesson right there, especially when there's a casket there and there was a casket there on this occasion. And the person was a believer. And we were told that that dear person was going to be in heaven. And there were unbelievers there. There were quite a number of them. And you know what was absolutely, utterly frustrating to my soul? I was so desperate to stand up and say something that there was no gospel presented. Oh, we were told, okay, she was in heaven, but we weren't told why. We weren't told that she was a dirty, rotten, hell-deserving sinner and that there was a time she saw that and she looked at the uplifted Savior and she repented of her sin and she believed the gospel and that's why she's going to be in heaven. There was none of that at a funeral. And what I'm saying is if we can't even preach the gospel at a funeral, maybe we've lost the plot completely. Now, maybe it's different in the Ottawa Valley. And again, I, if it is, praise God. But let me say, I believe we've abdicated gospel work to camps. Now, I have nothing against camps. I speak a lot at camps. But listen, it's not the responsibility of the camp to preach the gospel. The local assembly has that responsibility. It's a lampstand that's supposed to shine brightly in the dark world, which we find ourselves in. And the darker it gets, that it's supposed to be brighter, right? Because uh, I was down in central Florida recently out in the country. Beautiful. Not what you think of when you think of Florida, not Miami, all that kind of. This is rural Florida. I was just walking back one night and uh, it was a dark night, but the stars were shining magnificently. Oh, it was incredible because it was a black, black night, but the luminaries were shining. And that's how we're supposed to be in these last days. And so we think about this illustration. It doesn't work. It's not effective. What did Paul say? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, please. Uh, 2 Timothy, please. Sorry. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. And I'd like us to read the first five verses. 2 Timothy 4 and verses 1 through 5. He says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, at his appearing in his kingdom. And then he says this to Timothy, preach the word, be instant, in season, and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They'll turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables, like our day, the fable of evolution. People are turning their ears from truth, they're turning to fables, but he says this, but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Because what he's saying to Timothy is this. 
You preach the word in season and out of season. And part of that responsibility of preaching the word, Timothy, is do the work of an evangelist. Don't shun that responsibility. And, and of course, we know that there's difficulties with that. There's rejection. There's, uh, there's a lot of ridicule that may come. But he says, do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. In other words, maybe your ministry is not going to be fully what it ought to be if you neglect this, the core message of the gospel do the work of an evangelist. Now, I just want to focus on one thought from that section. He says, preach the word in season and out of season. And you know, the interesting thing is that God is the one who changes the seasons. So we might have gone through a period of, well, we'd say it's like a long winter. I know in Canada, it's, it's, it's always winter, right? And never Christmas. I know that. I know that you have long, long winters. Here it's spring. There's, there's blossoms everywhere. It's a beautiful time of the year. And there's evidence of new life everywhere you look. And God is the one that changes the seasons. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we got back to energetically preaching the gospel faithfully and God, who changes the seasons, changed the seasons for us. And there was a time of ingathering. And it's amazing how there are amazing times of ingathering. When I was saved in, in the early 80s, 80, 1981, I've met so many people that were saved at that time. There was a tremendous ingathering of souls. It was a season of harvest. And praise God, I was part of that harvest. Uh, but I, I do believe that God is the one who changes the seasons. Our responsibility is to preach the word in season and out of season and to cry out to him that he will bring a spiritual springtime to our meetings and a, a time of great ingathering and blessing. Never was there a preacher who accomplished much for the conversion of souls who did not dwell on Christ in him crucified. Spurgeon said this, he said, I took my stand many years ago at that place called Calvary. He said, I've stood before that cross and I proclaimed that message and he said, I preached it faithfully, and I'm not going to change now. And that man saw multitudes, one to the Savior. He preached the gospel from almost every portion of the word of God. He read his sermons, and almost every sermon, wherever he's preaching from, he gets back to that message of the old, old cross. And God used him mightily. Back in Ireland, uh, where we were serving many years ago, a young man would never be allowed to teach in an assembly if he had not first proved himself in the gospel. And the thinking was this, if a man is not right on the gospel, he's not right. It, you can unfold the blessings that flow from the gospel if you cannot first explain the gospel itself. I was talking to a young man recently, a fine, godly, serious young man raised in Honduras, and he told me exactly the same thing. He said, the brethren there would not let you loose teaching anything in the assembly until you had first proven yourself in the ability to unfold the message of the gospel. They said, do you want to be sure you're right on that before they let you loose on anything else? And I believe that there's great value in that. Because if you're not right on the gospel, you're not right. 
first book I ever studied myself personally and spent a lot of time studying it was the Epistle to the Romans. And part of the reason I studied that was I heard Warren Wiersbe on the radio one day and he said, if you're not right on Romans, you're not right. And I thought, well, I want to be right. So I better start right there. And I think he's correct, right? Because it's the unfolding of the foundational truth of the gospel. And if we're not right there, we're just not right. First things must be first. You cannot explain the blessings that flow from the cross till you first learn to linger at the cross, the source of all those blessings. The Holy Spirit delights to bless the pre this preaching. He loves to honor those that honor the cross. I know many of us would love to see revival. I've done a fairly extensive study of revival in my lifetime. I've read a lot of books on revival, many, many books. And one thing that I can tell you that there are two components that are found in every revival. One of them is prayer, that God's people cry out to God for blessing. And you, you'll never see a revival without someone somewhere burdened about the spiritual condition and crying out to God, Lord, will you not revive us again that your people might rejoice in you? And then the second thing that you will see in every revival is there there's a restoration of gospel preaching to its primary place in the church. There's a setting forth of the gospel. And, and of course, you, you look at any revival you want to choose, it comes back to this. It's rediscovering that message of the old, old cross, because that is the message that the power of God is directly connected with. In it is the power of God unto salvation. It's interesting. I was reading some lessons from an old evangelist in a little booklet that I was reading. And uh, he was working with a younger man, which was often the case, and uh, often these old evangelists. And, and even, uh, again, in the background that I was from, often you would have two gospel preachers. You'd have a young man who'd start, and then a young man, an older man who would finish. And you would all, always have this idea of the old and young working in tandem, the Paul and Timothy kind of idea. And it's a good idea. But anyway, this, this uh, old evangelist was working with a young man. And they had gone to a, a, a lady's house who was close to where they were holding these gospel meetings. And she'd not been out to any of the meetings. And so they went to visit her and she was very interested. And they actually, she, the old evangelist presented the gospel to her and he went over it very clearly, a man's ruin and God's remedy and the need of personal repentance and faith. And he, he went through the whole thing. And, um, and then as they left, he said to the younger man, what that lady needs is to hear preaching. And the young man says, what do you mean? What, what, what could a preacher do that she has not already heard this afternoon? You have unfolded the gospel so clearly. And he said, oh, you just don't understand it. You see, God is committed to the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the cross. Now, let me explain what I mean. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians with me again. And I want you to notice, we read this in our opening session 
in first corinthians 1 and from verse 17 uh, and we read down i think to verse 24 but in this in this little section the word to preach is found several times but actually there are four different words that are used for preaching in this little section and i want to just run through them quickly and, and so verse 17, it says, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And that's the first time it's used. And it's the word evangelize. Uh, it, it's, it's the evangelisco. That's the idea of the word. And it, it, it literally has the idea of making the gospel known by all available means. And so it could be personal work, whatever. It's just, it's just this idea of evangelizing, making the gospel known. And then verse 18, there's another word. It says the preaching of the cross, verse 18, is to them that perish foolishness. And that word preaching there is the word logos, the word of the cross. And it simply is referring to the person who we preach, the one who is the logos, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And so it's it's the person that we preach that is found in that particular verse, the logos. And then in verse 21, it says, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. And now we've got another word. And this, this other word is uh, karugama, and I may not be pronouncing it right, I'm not a Greek scholar, but it means the actual truths of the gospel. Uh, propitiation, redemption, substitution, reconciliation, justification, the foolishness of unfolding those great words of the gospel. And by the way, don't lose those great words of the gospel. They're very, very important words. But then there's one more that we want to consider, and that is in verse 23, where it says, but we preach Christ crucified. And this time the word preach is the word caruso, and it's found 61 times in the New Testament. And it simply means to preach. And it's the idea of as a herald. And it's this, this word that it comes from uh, in, in ancient Rome, of course, they had no uh, Twitter. Uh, they had no Facebook. They had no Internet. And so if there was important announces made from Rome, from the imperial uh, Roman rulership, leadership from Caesar himself, then an imperial herald was sent and he would go and he would proclaim this message and he would really kind of shout it out so that everybody could hear that message. And that's the word Caruso. And we are heralds. We're heralds not of Caesar or of Rome, but we're heralds from heaven itself. We have a message from heaven. And that message needs to be proclaimed through the preaching, through the heralding, with all the authority, not of Rome behind us, but of heaven behind us in the proclamation of the gospel. And what this old evangelist was saying is this, that there's something dynamic and powerful about the heralding of the message of Christ in him crucified that that woman needs to hear. 
you see the scripture says how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach except they be sent romans 10 14 and 15 and what is the word there it's that word again caruso it's the idea of how shall they hear without the herald who will proclaim that message with authority and power so i want to give some practical solutions if i may how do we get from where we are to where we need to be how do we regain the gospel initiative in our assemblies so i want to just urge you now you can ignore me if you like i mean you can just wait till the conference is over close your bibles go home and pretend you haven't heard anything you've heard or you could be exercised to do something and let me give you a suggestion for the assemblies in, in the Ottawa Valley, a suggestion that I might give to you. And that would be this, to designate, just to start off with, one Sunday a month where that Sunday is devoted to the preaching of the gospel, including a testimony. That would be good too, isn't it? Good to hear testimonies. Uh, since the pandemic, I've been part of a Friday evening uh, group that have testimony night. And of course, we've had unbelievers listen. We've had people saved as a result of it. And, and it's just been thrilling to hear these different testimonies of how people came to faith in the Lord Jesus. So include a clear testimony, include a clear presentation of the gospel message, upholding the glory of the cross, and also include rousing gospel hymns and encourage the believers. Please, if you've been witnessing to a friend, if you've been speaking to somebody, try and bring them out this Sunday, and we will guarantee that they will hear a clear presentation of the gospel. Remember, our assembly is meant to be a lampstand and not a social club. And I'll guarantee that if you do that, not only will the gospel be proclaimed powerfully but i also believe that it will edify the saints tremendously that they will go away with their hearts warmed afresh now i want us to go back to, to go to a book in revelation the book of revelation just for a second in chapter two revelation chapter two and i want to just put a, maybe a different spin on a scripture that we're all very familiar with and it's revelation two verse four where this very active church in Ephesus, and they're busy, they're active uh, in many, many ways. And he says a lot of good things about them. They're working hard, they're laboring, they're, uh, you know, they're doing a lot of things. But he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And there's been a lot of discussion about what that was that they left. Was it their love relationship with the Lord Jesus? What exactly was he talking about? I want to make a suggestion. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. But I believe that for most of us, our first love was the gospel message. See, it was a long time after I heard the gospel that I learned about worship. Several years. Really understood worship. It was a long time after I heard the gospel that I broke bread in New Testament simplicity, it was eight years afterwards. And so without question, for me, my first love was that glorious message that saved my soul, that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I love that message. And I wonder in the church at Ephesus, where they went wrong, is that they lost the gospel. They left their first love. They were busy about Christian things. And oh, you can be so busy about Christian things. And yet neglect the first thing, the most important principle of all. And that's the gospel. Do you recall when you first heard that lovely message? Do you recall when, when Jesus Christ was set forth, crucified among you, and you almost felt you were there at the cross? And you had to make a decision concerning that one in the middle. Do you remember that? Have you left that? Do you feel like you've gone beyond that? Do you feel like you're, you know, you're kind of above that now? See, I don't think we ever get beyond it or we ever should get beyond it. Let's go back to our opening uh, kind of key verse, Galatians 6 and verse 14. Paul says this, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. See, Paul used to glory in other things. He used to glory in his great heritage. You know, remember, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe, and yet it was a loyal tribe. The first king came from Benjamin, and it was loyal when the king, you know, when the nation was divided into the uh, into the two tribes and the ten tribes. Well, Benjamin was loyal, and so he used to boast in his heritage. He used to boast in his religious attainments. He was a, a Pharisee. Uh, of the Pharisees. Uh, I mean, this man was, uh, you know, he had so many things, but he says, I don't boast in them now. In fact, he said, as I think about those things, he said, I count them, but dung. They're just, they're just dung. I found something much better, much better than ever I knew. And I ever used to boast in. What is my boast now? Well, he says, God forbid that I should boast. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, or that his boss was the cross and the cross alone. See, once you grasp the real meaning of Calvary, everything else loses its significance. And the world that once had such an appeal loses all its luster because you recognize that that world hates the gospel. Paul knew that well. He knew the religious world hated the gospel because he was leading the charge in persecuting those that believed it. And so he knew the antagonism of the religious world to the message of Christ and him crucified because he, he was there. He was persecuting those believers. He also knew the political world was antagonistic to Jesus Christ and him crucified because he preached that message to Felix and to Festus and various Roman authority figures that he had come across and he saw their disdain. To the message of the cross. And so he said, that political world is nothing for me. I don't glory in that. I glory in the cross. And then he also knew the cultural world. He had debated on Mars Hill. He had, he had interacted with the great philosophers of the day, and he saw their mockery and disdain of the cross. And so he says, 
when I came to understand the cross, that's all I glory in. It's the message that changed my life. It's the message that saved my soul. It's the message that connected me with that heavenly man and changed everything. It was the game changer in my life. I've never been the same since. And the world with its antagonism to my savior, he said, that world is dead to me now. It's crucified to me. It, there's a, it, all connection is done with. And I'll tell you that we'll never be truly separated from this world until we grasp the significance of the cross. You see, it says, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom the world has crucified to me and I unto the world. Oh, beloved, is that true of us? You see this world in its antagonism, but behind it, you see, we, we can't just sit with the world because behind it is the God of this world. Behind it is the one who has set up this system that's in antagonism to God and, and hates God and hates Christ and hates the message of the cross. And he's the one that wants to bewitch us, even God's people. He's the one that really wants to put a spell on us. So we lose the significance of the cross because it's the biggest threat to his power base. Because the power of God is found in no other place than at the cross. Yes, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness and to the world it's still foolishness. But to us which are saved, it is the power of God. And if we preach this gospel, it can change people. It can transform lives. It can bring people out of the gutter and make them princes with God. Amazing what it can do. It can even reach the intellectuals. It can reach all races, all classes. And it's the only message that will never, ever in eternity say, I wish I hadn't preached the gospel as much as I did. <laughs> I think in eternity, we'll all wish we'd done it more. So may God encourage us this evening to get to the crux of the matter, the essential issue. What is the essential issue? The crux of the matter is this. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord. May that be true of all of us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you so work in our hearts that we would once again, as it were, pick up the gospel banner and have a fresh zeal for preaching Christ and him crucified. Lord, we're so far from this. We need to somehow get back. Forgive us for leaving that first love and bring us back to the place you'd have us to be. And Lord, we pray, even if there's one listening, that are still under that spell and have never seen the wonders of Calvary, somehow Christ set forth crucified among them might captivate their hearts tonight and they might bow the knee to the claims of the Lord Jesus. And we'll give thee the glory in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.